You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Let's pray together now. Lord, we know that all scripture is breathed out by you for us and that your breathed out words are infinitely profitable to us, for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, and for training us in righteousness. We ask, Lord, that you would do all of those things right now. Teach us, we pray. Rebuke us, we pray. Correct us and train us in righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, everyone, again. My name is Clint. I'm just one of four pastors here at Christ Church, and it's my honor to lead us this afternoon in the scriptures, even through this venue called Zoom. Thank you again for um, joining us online for this service. It's a common thing to hear on the mission field when things are all out of the ordinary, said from a good leader to a good team, and I I think it applies well to you all in this season. I'm so thankful for how fat you all are, flexible, adaptable, and teachable. They are invaluable characteristics, and we are finding you all to be the fattest around. So thank you for meeting with us over Zoom here for church and in gospel communities and Bible studies throughout the week. In this uh, abnormal season, there are a lot of questions floating around. How is this thing going to turn out? What do we do for now? Will things ever get back to normal? How can I help without hurting? And at the root of many of these questions, if folks are honest with themselves, there are deeper questions. Who or what is running this show? Is this random? Is this truly out of anyone's control? Is this rogue virus unstoppable? Is it Is it overpowering the most powerful people and organizations the world has ever seen? Can a wartime president and an immobilized population actually get a handle on this crisis? And even deeper than that, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, what is God up to? What does this crisis say about God's character and his care? What is he teaching each one of us during this season? that we couldn't have learned outside of this particular season. Well, here we find ourselves in Psalm 5, our last song to study before diving into the book of Colossians next week in a new series. My goal is to unpack this fifth song of David, where he cries out to God for a listening ear and for justice, all the while helping us understand God more deeply as David in his prayer draws lines between and around and through God's character, as well as man's character. Psalm 5 won't answer all of our questions about the coronavirus, but it will remind us of the kind and character of the God who is managing this outbreak from his holy, his loving, and his perfectly powerful and righteous throne. Hopefully you all have a Bible with you there so you can follow along and maybe even take some notes down. But what I think we'll see in Psalm 5 goes something like this. First, we'll see the Lord who listens, verse 1 through 3. Second, 
will see the Lord who loathes. Verse 4 through 6 and 9 and 10. And then third and finally, we'll see the Lord who loves. Verses 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. So first, the Lord who listens. Have you found yourself short on words with others this week? We know this is a physical distancing, right? Not really a social distancing. Let me encourage you to cry out to friends more than usual in this time. Picking up the phone, starting a group chat, staying connected. But also be willing and ready to shut down technology. Spend time alone and with your family praying. That's what David does here. David asks God to listen in verse 1, to hear his innermost groans, his deep, gut-wrenching feelings that eventually make their way from head, I'm sorry, from heart to head. Feelings that eventually give way to words and words that grow up into cries for help and then into articulate prayers. Prayers he expects to be heard, to be listened to, to be responded to. We should note here too that David, as the king, needs himself to have a king as well. The highest power needs a higher power. Even the king needs a sacrificial mediator as well. He's not mentioned here, but there's a high priest in Israel during this time, and he must represent David and his people to God and vice versa. Earthly kings and government rulers are not all powerful. They and we would be wise to recognize our limitations and our need for divine intervention and mediation between that divine intervention. Notice, too, how David comes expectant. He says he's watching. But before he's watching, first he comes worshiping. He knows his place as a worshiper, and he knows his dependence on God to act. And this should shape our prayers. Do you do you go straight to asking for a laundry list of prayer requests, or Do we adore and worship God first when we come to him in prayer? For David, in this psalm, worshiping God and declaring his dependence on him is the first thing on his mind in the morning. How long? How long does it take us to acknowledge God in a given day? Is our first prayer to God at lunchtime, thanking him for the meal? There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but hopefully we're consistently turning our days over to God early in the day like David does. Do we feel dependent enough finally in these days, in this season, to go to him before we go to our favorite podcast or our favorite news source. You may be the highest on the totem pole at school or at work or in your home, but let not our earthly positions fool us, friends. From the top to the bottom of our society, as perhaps has never been more clear than this past week, we need God's help. There are forces in this world cloaked no longer that threaten to ruin us economically, emotionally, physically, relationally, and spiritually. We must memorize and heed Paul's teaching in Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God does not promise to give everything we ask for, but he promises peace for those that come worshipful, that come thankful, and that come expecting him to hear and to listen to our prayers. There's a deep and abiding, peaceful, worshipful watchfulness for God's people. And where does that peace come from? Well, according to Psalm 5, it comes from a listening God, but it also comes from a loathing God. Second, we'll see in verse 4 through 6 and 9 and 10, the Lord who loathes. To loathe something is to hate it. Just to be super clear here, the Lord, the God who made everything and everyone, is capable of and even active in hatred. This hatred of evildoers specifically mentioned in verse 5, but drawn from throughout these two sections of the psalm, is a holy hatred, very much unlike the unjust hatred that human beings most often feel for one another. So we should be clear here that God's ability to hate evil and destroy liars and to cut off the bloodthirsty from his presence is a function of his perfect justice and perfect ability to judge rightly. So, what or who does God hate? The answer to that at a very basic level is this. God hates that which ought to be hated. And God hates those who ought to be hated. Everything God does is perfect. Everything he does is right. God can never be accused of wrong. And if something God is or does feels wrong to us, it's okay to feel that. It's, it's okay to ask about it. It's okay to look for answers. But don't be surprised if every time the solution comes in the form of us learning and growing, when we understand him better, when we understand his word better, when we give up our presumptions, when we submit and believe in a new and more joyfully humble and submissive way. Now you may be thinking, wait, 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 I thought God is love. And if and if you're thinking that, then you're correct. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, says in his short letter, 1 John chapter 4, that we are to love one another. And if we don't love one another, then we don't know God, because God himself is love. What a wonderful opportunity for us as believers in God's perfect word to not interpret it using merely our own limited abilities and logic, but to follow the ancient practice of letting Scripture interpret Scripture for us. Letting Scripture set boundaries around itself for us. If it is true that God can and does hate, and that God is, in His very essence, love, and that He calls us to love, even as Jesus says specifically, love your neighbors and love your enemies, then there must be a way that love can love and love can hate. I would contend that based on the whole counsel of God in the Bible, that even love knows how to hate. In fact, perfect love knows how to hate perfectly. Even John knows this. The same John who wrote God is love in his short little letter also describes in Revelation 14 and Revelation 20 a lake of fire and an eternal torment for sinners that will never end. And if we're honest, this can only be described as hatred for evildoers, the very fulfillment of what David is calling for in Psalm 5. 
It's critically important at this point to note that God's hatred toward sinners and God's wrath toward evildoers is not some out-of-control, irrational anger of an abusive father that maybe perhaps some of us have even seen in this world. Rather, Tim Keller's definition of God's wrath helps us understand how wrath can be good and can come from a loving heart. Keller says that God's wrath is God's perfect and settled opposition to that which threatens to destroy those who God loves perfectly. An analogy from the family might do us some good here. What father or mother, grandfather or grandmother hasn't felt the twinge of hatred, of of wrath, of settled opposition to that which threatens the child or the grandchild they love? When someone external threatens the safety of a child, when a lack of wisdom internally in that child threatens their own future, or even when rebellion threatens self-destruction imminently. We, as mere creatures, human beings, we cannot get this balance and dosing perfect, but the God who made us can, and he does. David cries out for justice here. He longs for an evening of the scales of justice by appealing to God's hatred for those who oppose God, for those who oppose God's people, and even for those who oppose themselves and their own ability to be reconciled to God. David is saying here, oppose those who oppose you, God. Oppose those who oppose your people. He's even saying, oppose those who oppose themselves. Evildoers and liars, bloodthirsty rebels, they have alienated themselves from God and cut themselves off from his perfect love. Their wickedness brings them justly under guilt in God's eyes and separates them from their maker to whom they owe their whole lives and in whom they would find perfect satisfaction if they would just turn. It's interesting and honestly troubling is that David in other Psalms seems to assume the right to hate evildoers too. In Psalm 26 and 31 and 119 and 139, David says things like this, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I hate the double-minded. I hate those who hate you, Lord. I loathe them, he says, and I hate them with complete hatred. How are we to reconcile this with Jesus's words calling us as his people in Luke 6 to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us? We must note here, And remember that David, particularly as king, has a unique authority and a duty delegated to him by God to exercise justice. Similarly to presidents today, governors, mayors, sheriffs, officers, and judges here in our day. We see this clearly in Romans chapter 13 as Paul calls us to submit to God given authorities over us. Authorities to whom he has given the sword to punish evildoers, Romans 13 says. I, for one, am thankful when our government puts together laws and policies that are meant to find and catch and prosecute and punish evildoers in a way that can only be described as righteous, God-given hatred for them. Now, we live in a relatively just society, but not all Christians do. And though we know that The relative justice we experience rolls down from our Father above. He accomplishes it in various situations, to varying degrees, and at varying speeds, and not always as quickly, swiftly, or thoroughly as we would like. We ought to be thankful for the relative justice we experience 
in our society, in our day, generally when 911 is called, justice answers, not always perfectly, but overwhelmingly helpfully in our day, in this place, especially relative to other places and other days. Harriet Tubman is my hero, full stop. She risked her life to oppose an unjust system sanctioned by the government of kidnapping, human trafficking, and human slavery. If you haven't read a bio, of Harriet Tubman, read it and weep like I did. If you haven't watched the most recent movie about her called Harriet, then watch it this week and weep like we did. It's PG-13 for concerned parents out there. Harriet was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and she refused to submit to the government's sanctioned injustice of slavery. She risked her own safety for the freedom of many. And today, Christians in North Korea and Iran, along with those in dozens of other countries disregard their government's warning to not preach the gospel to their own peril day in and day out. Brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria wonder if their village will be the next target of kidnappings by Muslim extremists as they look hopelessly to a government that has proven unable or unwilling to protect them. Even here in our own relatively just society, we cannot count on our leaders or judges or officers to exercise justice perfectly. And we should know that God hates when those called to establish justice abuse or neglect it, be they kings or politicians or judges or police officers or even medical personnel or doctors. How tragic is it when the phrase essential medical procedures is slapped onto what seems to be an elective abortion all the way up to the moment before viable birth? How dark is the phrase, my body, my choice. How sad when our leaders sanction the ending of innocent human life in the name of reproductive freedom or worse, sexual and economic liberty. What about the child's body? What about all the choices they should be allowed to grow up and make for themselves? What about their economic stability? God hears and God listens and responds in a, a unique way to those who are oppressed by injustice. So David seems to have a particular allowance of hatred toward evildoers as God gives to earthly authorities. But how sad when those authorities are found negligent or worse, complicit in the very acts against God, against God's people, against innocence. And even as we feel what can only be called hatred swelling in our hearts for those that would abuse our loved ones or abuse the unborn and defenseless or abuse others in the name of holy war. Even then we are called by Jesus to treat them with what can only be called love. So the Bible seems to allow for both love and hate to flow in the same channel. And for us to humbly accept both possibilities and to shine the light of truth and grace in all circumstances. All the while acknowledging that we are not the king and therefore our ability to articulate and act on hatred for evildoers is limited within bounds. And these bounds are ultimately governed by our call to love as we have been loved. You may be asking though, wait, how does David specifically have the right to ask for wrath against evildoers? Wouldn't he qualify in some ways for the same justice that he's asking for here in Psalm 5? The answer is yes. 
Yes, he would. And yes, yes, you would. And yes, yes, I would. Every human who has ever lived falls ultimately into the categories that David is calling for justice against. Which brings us to our third and final point here in Psalm 5. Finally, we see a Lord who loves. Verse 7 and 8 and 11 and 12. It's a fair question to be asked, isn't it? Could David stand if his sins were counted up and rounded up and charged and pressed against him? Couldn't Uriah, who David stole his wife from, recite this same psalm and prayer against David directly? Wouldn't David's own daughter, who sought, injust- who sought justice from him after being abused by her brother, be able to cry out to God in a similar way as David is here in Psalm 5? The answer is yes. And David says as much and acknowledges as much in Psalm 130 that if God were to track iniquities, no one, including himself, could stand. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, God, I'm sorry, David openly acknowledges his own evil and how much he needs God's forgiveness. And it is at this very point that we find the difference maker. What is it that separates the evildoer that gets God's hatred? and separation from him, and the evildoer that gets God's love and is able to enter his presence? The answer is in verse 11. Those who take refuge in you, you spread your protection over them. There's a very strong element in this psalm that we must be careful not to misapply to ourselves as Christians. David has a promise rooted in the Mosaic Covenant That as he trusts in God and honors God's words, that God's favor will manifest itself very directly in both physical and social safety for David and for God's people. This is why we see such a direct correlation between the belief and obedience of God's people with their physical and social safety in the Old Testament. But we must remember that this is under the old covenant and that the old covenant gave way to something better in Christ, something newer deeper, richer. Psalm 5 verse 9 says that sinners' throats are open graves. And Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans chapter 3, quotes this phrase directly. And he's clearly grouping everyone in the world under this umbrella. In fact, before quoting this phrase about death-filled throats, Paul says, for we are all under sin in the same way. Then Paul scoops up a bunch of Psalms and Proverbs and prophets and describes the comprehensiveness of our personal inner rebellion against God by saying, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They're they, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is why Jesus can say on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, The heart that hates is the same heart that murders. So friends, you and I are guilty of murder. And Jesus can say the heart that lusts is the same heart that takes. So therefore we are all guilty before God of taking that which is not ours. 
Even David, who steals a man's wife and steals that same man's life, is essentially praying against himself here in Psalm 5. Now, in a sense, in one sense, David, in his immediate context and in his song, is dealing with relative evil and relative righteousness. David is righteous relative to his persecutors at this particular juncture in his life and by way of his daily sacrifice and worship of God under the old covenant. And David is tapping into promises made to God's people in that covenant. But remember, Jesus makes a new and better promise to his people with different and deeper and better applications and implications for us now. And as we saw already, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus says this too, if I suffer, you will suffer if you choose to follow me. And Paul tells the suffering Philippian church that suffering is a, a gift unique to believers, meant to build up their hope while in this life, but ultimately build up their hope beyond this life. And David's peace is found when his enemies, particularly, are judged in and punished for their rebellion. Our peace is found when we realize that we have not been judged as guilty as we are, nor punished in our rebellion as we deserve. This is the greatest expression of God's love, of God's refuge, of God's favor, and of God's protection. Paul tells the Romans clearly in verse 23 of chapter 6 of Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you know you're a sinner, friend, then you should know the gift and love of God. From the same chapter, that says that God is love. 1 John 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The punishment of our sins has been fully absorbed in Christ, our propitiation. That's what it means to absorb and satisfy the righteous wrath of God for us. The right and perfect holy hatred of God toward you has been satisfied in his judgment and crucifixion of Jesus in our place. We no longer bear our guilt. So we don't need our persecutors punished in this life to be made whole. We don't need our enemies eliminated in this life to, meet, to be made whole. If it happens, praise the Lord. And if it doesn't, it will all ultimately be sorted out when Christ returns. Those who persist in evil and unbelief will perish and pay the just penalty for their sin. And those who turn from sin and trust in Christ will be totally forgiven, even those who have you and me. Jesus will answer both David's cries for help and our cries for help on the last day when he comes to judge finally and forever. But he has already answered our cry for help by exchanging our sin for Christ's righteousness and by saving those who he used to hate, namely you and me. We, unlike David, have a sacrifice made for us once for all to bring us perfectly to God now. And so we have the refuge of his presence now and his promise to keep us safe in faith now, even if physical and social safety elude us continually. All means of physical and emotional safety in the family and society should be leaned on for help. But as some of you know all too well, nothing can keep us in perfect peace 
except for a deep and abiding trust in the promises that we have in Christ. So let me leave you with this. The promise David longed to hear, but which didn't come until his greatest grandson, Jesus Christ, came along as the final prophet, the perfect priest, and the forever king. From Romans chapter 8. First in verse 1 and then skipping down to verse 31. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or might I add here a coronavirus? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, we can bank on these promises in Christ a million times more than David ever could in his distress, in his context. Even if corona spreads or our persecution of the church over issues of religious liberty spread, we have the promises that David banked on by the blood of goats and an external temple. We have that sealed and delivered to us that Christ will hold us fast in faith, not in a physical or religious safety, but spiritually, peacefully, sealed up and delivered by his own precious blood to us eternally. Let us bank on that, friends. Let us bank on that now in prayer together. Let's pray. Lord, give ear to our words. Consider our groaning and give attention to our cry. We trust that in the name of Jesus, you hear us and you are for us. Thank you for rescuing us from our wickedness. Though we were born into sin and evil as enemies of you, thank you that you've made a way through your abundance, your steadfast love in Christ, that we may enter into your presence and your Holy Spirit has entered into our souls. We admit fear when disease or persecution threatens us and others on scales big and small. We long for it to end, especially for those experiences, harshest versions around the world. We trust that your just character will win the day, that your abundant love has forgiven us and will transform us, that your spirit will sustain us as we wait for final judgment. Lord, we look together to the day you will rescue us finally and forever out of this broken world of sin and sickness and sorrow. And until then, Lord, please shine the light of grace and peace through us. Give people around us a question in their hearts about where our hope comes from and give us words to articulate, articulate your good news well. And give them grace, Lord, to repent, to turn away from sin, to trust in you by faith and to join us 
as reconciled rebels. Thank you for covering us with Christ, our greatest refuge. We love your name. We worship your son and you, Lord. We feel blessed in Jesus. Help us abide in him every day when we're together and when we're apart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.